that the meditations of our heart, the words of my mouth, that they might be acceptable unto you. We pray that the result of this message and the hearing of your word would instill in us a great confidence in your word, a greater worship of you as our God, and a greater passion to know you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So October 31st of this month marks the 500th anniversary of the day when Martin Luther marched up to the castle door of the church in Wittenberg and nailed his 95 theses there. And it's that moment that history is looked to as deciding the beginning of the Reformation. And to mark this momentous milestone, the elders desired to just uh, take advantage of that opportunity and do a series on Reformation doctrine. The Reformation spread through multiple countries throughout Europe, and yet, despite spreading through multiple countries and having various different leaders, the Reformers, in their doctrine, remained relatively similar. And the essence of Reformed doctrine, theologians have typically summed up with five alones, or five solas, which is Latin for alone. Sola Scriptura, which means Scripture alone. And that the church's ultimate authority is the Bible. Sola Gratis, grace alone, which indicates our belief that men are saved not based upon their simple choice, but by God's grace, because we are totally depraved apart from His work in our lives. Sola Fide means faith alone, that we are saved by um, our faith in Christ, not by our works. Solus Christus, Christ alone, that one can only be saved because of the work of Christ upon the cross. And Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone, which marks the aim of all that we do, the aim of all of our lives as Christians, as individual believers, but also the aim of the church. And today we'll look at what is known as the formal principle of the Reformation, the doctrine of sola scriptura. So in John 17:17, 17, 17, which I read to you, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. This one verse really summarizes the essence of sola scriptura. Your word is truth. That the word of God is authoritative. It is true. That's where truth is found. And sanctify them in the truth. That the power of sanctification is in the word of God. So the three men most identified as the beginners of the Reformation, uh, most people look to as John Wycliffe. He's known as the morning star of the Reformation. John Huss, who was really a follower of Wycliffe. He he, uh, lived in Bohemia, modern day Czech Republic. And then, of course, Martin Luther. And each of those men successively built upon the work of the other that went before them. And what is most striking about them is that when each of these men were brought to trial for their beliefs, they all fell back on one standard for confidence. Their confidence that the Bible was the ultimate source of authority. The reason they held unswervingly to their beliefs was the plain interpretation of Scripture. And all three, actually, in all of their trials, said they would willingly recant anything that the church authorities might present to them as being contrary to the word of God. They all said, if you can, any one of my doctrines, if you can show for me just from Scripture that what I believe is not accurate, I will readily recant it. But of course that didn't happen. The church was unable to refute their teachings by Scripture. Instead, they appealed to the writings of popes or of councils or of other church fathers or even um, false scriptures known as the Apocrypha. But they couldn't refute those doctrines of those reformers by Scripture. And in their trials, 
those who were representing the church, the church authorities, were shocked. Not because of their appeal to Scripture, but the fact that those men thought that their interpretation of Scripture was the right one, in opposition to what many other people had said. They would ask, in essence, who do you think you are that your interpretation is the right one? In the face of the saints, those holy church fathers, in, in, in the face of the Pope, that you, Martin Luther, or John Huss, or John Wycliffe, that who, do, who do you think you are to call everybody else wrong and you right? Don't you realize your pride to go against a church who has been interpreting the Bible for centuries? That's a loaded question. What is it? How can one respond to such an accusation of pride in and not sway in the face of such? And, and, and this is the other thing. When these guys were on trial, they were on trial for their lives. If they're condemned as heretics, and they were, their life was forfeit. But the reformers were not stupid. They held doctorates in theology, and some of them were the brightest minds in history. They knew that there were actually many other men who had gone before, who had disagreed with the church's current doctrines. And they had brought up their, those questions. And many of these teachings, these current doctrines, were relatively new. They had only developed over the last couple hundred years or so. And they also knew that the documents that were cited in the popes and the church fathers, that, that these uh, doctrinal positions were based upon by the church... They, they disagreed with one another. They weren't consistent. And that's why Martin Luther, echoing the previous statements made by Wycliffe and Huss, proclaimed in that famous Diet of Worms, he said, Unless I am convinced by Scripture and by plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they've often contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. And so, in order to understand the Reformers and their deep conviction of this doctrine of sola scriptura as the authority for faith and practice in the church, I want to address this doctrine really in three parts. First, we'll look at the problems that existed within the church that led the Reformers to clarify this doctrine and its importance. Second, I want to look at the biblical support um, and, and see how the Reformers applied those verses, those, those Bible verses, to their own lives. And then third, we'll consider how this doctrine should practically affect the way we live today and how we do ministry as a church. So let's begin at the problems within the church. The way the Catholic Church would approach a theological problem or a uh, interpretation of Scripture was by looking at a, at a variety of sources I mentioned. They would look at church fathers. They would look at apocryphal books. They would look at statements made by church councils or creeds. And they would look at Scripture. The problem, though, with often when they look at Scripture is they had really bad hermeneutics. If you'd taken Chris's class or take, go to his seminar, you'll, reckon, you'll see some of this. He addresses it directly in that class. So their interpretation of Scripture was skewed. It was largely allegorical, which meant they didn't take the plain meaning of the text, so they tried to read into it, and it, was, it tended to be highly creative, but not what the text was actually meant to say. So they used all these different sources to try and come up with their best understanding of what the Word of God meant. Yet when all was said and done, their position, they would acknowledge that their conclusive answer was still, here's a Latin word, tendentio. Tendentio. That is, it was tentative. It was their way of saying, this is our best guess at what this means. And in that tentativeness, the, the decisive conclusion fell upon the Pope. And the Pope would be the one who gave the decisive answer. This is what the church's position is going to be. This is what 
I declare this doctrine to be based upon the fact that I am the vicar of Christ upon the earth. So he was the deciding factor in issues of conflict. So they had this tentative theology. Another problem within the church at this time was their pathetic preaching. After the fall of Rome in uh, 476 AD, this is the date typically given to it, really preaching fell out of practice. And the, the worship service was, was largely just done in Latin and preaching, just there really wasn't much preaching. There really wasn't much reading of scripture even. And subsequently, immorality increased even within the church. And in 1209, so hundreds of years later, St. Francis of Assisi saw this, this corruption, immorality, this love of power and wealth within the church and the immorality that abounded in the clergy. And to counter that, he started an order of mendicant monks who took vows of poverty and who ministered particularly to the sick and the poor since they were largely neglected. And his followers became known as the Franciscans. And St. Francis was a, was, a, was a wonderful man. I have great respect for him. But his followers um, didn't really follow in his practice, at least after a few generations. What happened is the Franciscans, in their ministry, actually gained considerable wealth. So as they would go about uh, ministering to the poor, they, you know, people would give them massive amounts of money, and they actually accumulated more wealth than many of the nobles in these countries where they were serving. And so their vows became, their vows of poverty in particular, became relatively meaningless. And, but they still continued to seek financial assistance. And they became actually the main opponents of John Wycliffe. In fact, many of his writings were directed particularly against the Franciscans because of these abuses. He wrote of them in one of his lectures. These friars were said to kidnap children from their parents and shut them up in monasteries. They also affected to be poor and with a wallet on their back, begged with a piteous air from both high and low, but at the same time they dwelt in palaces, heaped up treasures, dressed in costly garments, and wasted their time in luxurious entertainments. So what they would do is, in order to gain a crowd, they would really preach to entertain. And they, they, they abandoned the scripture in order for storytelling, because that's what drew a crowd. And, they, they, and that's what they sought, because you have a crowd, the more money you're going to gain. And that's what their superiors sent them out to do. Very much in contrast to what Francis established that order for. One of the uh, historians of the Reformation said, while they, the, they diverted themselves eating and drinking at their well-spread tables, they used to send ignorant and uneducated persons in their place to preach fables and legends to amuse and plunder the people. And so in order to counter this abuse of preaching... Wycliffe began a school for training pastors who became known as the Lollards. And like the Franciscans, they, well, unlike the Franciscans, I should say, they received no money, no support from the people they preached to. And they taught directly out of the English scripture that uh, Wycliffe had actually translated at the time. And 20 years later, after Wycliffe had established this, these, this seminary, the, the Lollards, the English church was so frightened by the influence of Lollard preaching, they outlawed it. And at that point, again, 20 years after uh, they, they, they began their ministry, anybody who preached without being ordained by the Catholic church and who did not adhere to Catholic doctrine would be decried as a heretic and therefore subject to execution. And which leads to the third error big problem in the church, which was their suppression of Scripture. So again, at this time period, the Scripture was not translated into the common tongues of the people. It was just in Latin. And there were also very few Bibles in circulation. In fact, Martin Luther himself said he never even saw a Bible until he had already been a monk many years and he was in his 20s. Now, he would say that they would have scriptures that were kind of like on a church bulletin, but that was the, the, the most that he'd ever seen of the Bible. And the reason why Bibles were not translated into the common tongues was because of their fear of, being, of it being misinterpreted. It was assumed that the scriptures were so difficult to understand that if you translated them into the common 
tongues, the people would destroy it. So that uh, the Constitution of Oxford, 1408, was a council that was established in Oxford in order to outlaw this lollard preaching and outlaw the English Bible. And this was the explanation they gave. They said, The translation of the text of Holy Scripture out of one tongue into another is a dangerous thing. Therefore, we enact and ordain that no one henceforth do by his own authority translate any text of the Holy Scripture into English or any other by way of book in part or in whole. In other words, if there is any Bible verse in English that is caught, that person is subject to excommunication and therefore execution. The dramatist John Bale who lived in 1495 to 1563, said, As a boy of 11 years old, he watched the burning of a young man in Norwich because that man possessed the Lord's Prayer in English. And John Fox records that seven Lollards were burned at Coventry in 1519 because they taught their children the Lord's Prayer in English. So why did the Reformers move away from the tentative theology of the Catholic Church and then place their whole confidence in the Word of God? The the simple answer is because they recognized that's what it was. It's, It's the Word of God. And that's what the Word of God proclaims itself to be and proves itself to be. They, they understood that in order to know what God wanted, in order to know how they should live and how they should go about ministry, they had to look at the Word, the source. Which brings us to the principles. Again, going back to John seventeen seventeen, Sanctify them in your truth. Your Word is truth. And really, this, this establishes the, the, the two principles of sola scriptura. The fact that the Bible is, and there's others, but we'll focus on just these, The fact that the Bible is completely authoritative. It's our ultimate source of authority as Christians. And secondly, it is our source of power. It's what changes lives. Not men, but the Word of God. Let's look first at uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. You can read that on the screen. I'll read it to us. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on that holy mountain. I mean, catch that. Peter is saying, I was on the mountain with Jesus Christ. Our Lord, when God the Father spoke to him audibly, I heard the voice. And he says, but the word of God that we have is even more wholly confirmed than that voice. And he says, this is why we need to pay attention to what it says. He continues, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This means that even though it was physical men writing out the word of God, it was the Holy Spirit in them directing them what to write, guiding them as they wrote. So none of the scriptures they wrote were ever really produced by them, but it was they were directed by the word of God. They were breathed out by God, which is actually what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says. All Scripture, all, note, all Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So all of the Bible is breathed out by God. All of it is God's word. And God does not lie. As Jesus says, thy word is truth. 
And it's not just that the Bible communicates the message of God in a general sense. But it's the, the actual words, the actual grammar of the scriptures present God's word. Jesus says in Matthew 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Those are grammar markings in the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Which is what verb tenses are based upon. So the very grammar that we have in the originals, none of it will pass away. It's all intended. All of it will come to pass. Every noun, every verb, everything is stated exactly as God purposed it. And Jesus said in John 10.35, And the scriptures cannot be broken. That means they will all be fulfilled. And as Paul wrote to Timothy, because it's God's word, it is sufficient to teach. That's what we need. That's, what we, that's all we need to look to. It's sufficient to teach us all we need to know. To rebuke us. To correct us. And to train us in righteousness. Just incidentally, this comes into my mind. We are, I mean, as Americans, we are, we are desperate to know how can we grow? What do we need to do? What resources do we need to look to? I mean, realize what this is saying. It's sufficient. If you have the Bible and you understand the Bible, it is sufficient to grow in life and godliness. Sufficient. That's amazing. What a gift. And that is why Paul tells Timothy, the pastor's job, therefore, is to preach God's word. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you, Timothy... In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in the kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see what Paul's saying? He said, this is, this is the pastor's job. This is how church leaders are to lead. But then, again, bring us back to the Reformation. Hardly any of this was happening at the time of the Reformation. Hardly anybody was preaching. Hardly any scriptures were being proclaimed. Because they were afraid of misinterpreting God's word. Now, while such reverence... And respect for the Word of God is very admirable. I mean, consider Isaiah 66.3. On this one I will look, who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my Word. I mean, that, that should be our response to the Word of God, to tremble before it. And yet, to hide it and to close it off, that's not the right response to trembling at God's Word. It's hardly that. Rather, the proper response is to make sure it's interpreted rightly. As Paul tells Timothy, do your best to present your God, yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's how you should respond with fear of the word of God and reverence to the word of God. It's not by hiding it, by making sure that you rightly understand it and you rightly teach it. And it was because of their confidence in the ultimate authority of God's word that the reformers were willing to challenge those particular doctrines in the Catholic Church. The only church at that time. Now, a couple of stories to demonstrate this. When John Wycliffe was summoned before the Archbishop of Canterbury, that's the leader of the Church of England today. Back then, he was just the leader of, well, he was still the leader of the Church of England, but it was directly tied to the Church in Rome. He was summoned to appear before him on the charge of heresy. And it was his confidence in the authority of Scripture that strengthened him. Now, it so happened, as Wycliffe was going in to be charged with heresy, a, a nobleman 
uh, John of Gaunt was his name, uh, came to his aid and actually broke up the proceedings and said, this is not legal. I'm not going to let it happen. And his enemies couldn't do anything. But before he left the trial, Wycliffe asserted this, quote, I resolve with all my heart and by the grace of God to be a sincere Christian. And while my life shall last to profess and defend the law of Christ so far as I have power. He didn't say the doctrines of the church of Rome. He said the law of Christ, meaning the word of God. And his enemies who were listening responded by asserting, well, whatever the Pope orders should be looked upon as right. And the reformer answered, what? You mean the Pope may then exclude from the scriptures any book that displeases them and alter the Bible at pleasure? Because that was the implication of what they were saying. And his enemies, knowing they had little power, while some of those nobles defended him, instead sought to humiliate him. Okay, if we can't get him excommunicated and executed, we'll just humiliate him. We will undermine what he's doing. And so one day, while he was seated in his doctoral chair in Oxford, he was a professor at Oxford, calmly explaining the, the nature of the Lord's Supper, which you get a privilege to celebrate together, an officer entered the hall and read a papal sentence of condemnation. He's teach, picture this. He's teaching his students calmly. Somebody walks in, and this is an officer of the law, and reads a papal sentence of condemnation. In other words, students, your teacher is a heretic. And he listens to this verbal degradation while it goes on. It doesn't say a thing. He just calmly listens. But then afterwards he responded, saying this, Since the year of our Lord 1000, all the doctors have been in error about the sacrament of the altar, except perhaps it may be Beringer of Tours. How can you, O priest, who are but a man, make your maker? In other words, because they believed that the bread was, in the, in, the, in the Eucharist, the bread was actually the presence of God. He says, how can you make your maker? The thing that grows in the fields, the ear which you pluck today shall be God tomorrow. As you cannot make the works which he made, how shall you make him who made the works? Woe to the adulterous generation that believes the testimony of Pope Innocent rather than the gospel. So again, he looked to scripture as his ultimate authority. And likewise, we can look to it as our authority, but also our, it's for power. As Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Jesus, in this statement, asserts the power of God's word. It is what sanctifies. It is what makes us holy. It is what causes us to grow spiritually. It is what has the power to change people's hearts from being hardened to, to, to being indulgent of the flesh, to have no appetite for the things of God, to go in to being in love with the Spirit of God. It's not clever speech. It's not awesome illustrations. It's not inspiring preaching. The power to change people comes from the Word of God. As Paul said, we read in our study of 1 Corinthians, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And knowing the power was in the word and not in the preacher or his eloquence is what Paul drove Paul and shaped his ministry. In his preaching, he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see that? The, the power is not in our eloquence. It's not in any other sort of gimmick. It's in the word itself. Hearing it and understanding it, that's what changes people. And knowing the power of God's word was also what compelled him to boldly share the gospel with the lost. 
Because he knew that as he went from country to country, just sharing this simple message, it was that message that had the power to melt men's hearts and to make them into lovers of God. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And because the reformers recognized that the source of spiritual power is God's word, that is why they sought to translate it into the common tongue, into every language of the countries where they went. And it is no accident that where the scriptures were translated, those were the countries that were transformed by the gospel. That is where the Reformation took root, where the scriptures were translated. It wasn't necessarily where the greatest teachers were, or even where there was the greatest political power who was favorable to Protestantism. It's where the scriptures were translated. It's amazing. Except, I mean, this is what the Bible says would happen. Take, for instance, Germany. Right after uh, Martin Luther was condemned at the Divide of Worms, but his life was forfeit. And basically, he knew any time the, the, the Pope authorities, papal authorities could capture him, and then they'd take him to Italy and where he'd probably be executed. And Luther's friends, of course, knew this. And so as he was traveling back to his hometown from Worms to Wittenberg, he was kidnapped. But he happened to have been kidnapped by his, uh, we'll call it guardian, uh, Frederick the Elector. And he was whisked away into this castle where he was hidden. And while he was staying in this castle for a couple of years, hidden from the papal authorities, he devoted his time particularly to translating the word of God into English. Or sorry, not in English, into German. And later in his life, Luther clarified to his students that he was not the reason the Reformation took place. But the reason it took place, he said, was the releasing of the Bible into the common tongue. He says this. It's a great quote. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip of Omsdorf, so he was not a Southern Baptist or a fundamentalist, we can tell, He said, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that the prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. No prince or emperor ever inflicted such loss upon it. I did nothing, but the word did everything. That's from the lion's mouth. Same phenomenon happened in England. Again, we we noted that Wycliffe translated the Bible into English from Latin. But again, 200 years later, After, remember the, sorry, take a step back. In 1408, 20 years after that Bible had been translated, it was outlawed in England. And any form of the Bible was burned. It was destroyed. And so then there was a dearth again of the scriptures in English. And inspired by Wycliffe and particularly Luther's writings in Germany, 200 years after Wycliffe, William Tyndale, translated the Bible from Greek, the original language, into English. And that's significant because the Latin actually translated, just just one instance, the Latin actually translated the word repentance as penance. And so Wycliffe's translation even said, um, we shouldn't just repent and believe, but we need to do penance and believe. Well, that means a very different thing, especially if you're Roman Catholic. So there was even errors within the Latin translation. And Tyndale went back to the Greek and Hebrew. And doing so cost him 12 years of exile. Because again, he was, he was now an outlaw. And he spent those 12 years translating the Bible into English and, uh, and publishing it. And he would, they would, he would have a, he had his, an intricate organization of Bible smuggling. A really fascinating story. Uh, David Daniel has a great uh, biography on him. And it gets into all the details of this. But he was eventually caught and, and executed. And right before he was strangled to death, he was strangled to death first and then they burned his body afterwards. Right before he was killed, his last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. 
This is dying breath. And since the Bible was not so widely, or it had become so widely circulated in England, many nobles after this began to read the Word of God that had been smuggled in. And as they read the Word of God, they realized what Luther's saying is correct. What, what other reformers are saying is correct. And they began to put pressure upon Henry VIII, who was a devout Catholic. In fact, he was given an honorary title as the defender of the faith. Which, of course, if you know the history of the Anglican Church, he's the one that actually separated from the Anglican Church because not for any noble reason, he wanted to get a divorce and that wasn't being granted. But with that pressure that was put on Henry VIII, and we could say even Henry VIII's lusts, God answered Tyndale's dying prayer. And Henry authorized the Bible in English. The same phenomenon happened in France. The scriptures were also translated into French. And that allowed John Calvin, kind of a second generation of reformers after Luther, it allowed him while he was in Geneva, actually preaching to refugees from France, because any Protestantism was, was outlawed in France. And so people were leaving France, coming to Geneva and other countries, and he would preach. And having the Bible in French allowed him to preach the Bible to them. And, and they could read the Bible as he was preaching. And Calvin would systematically preach verse by verse through the books of Scripture. And he preached on a New Testament book on Sunday mornings and afternoons. Okay? Twice on Sunday. And then in an Old Testament book on weekday mornings. He preached nearly every day. And I was struck, I was t- telling some of the brothers earlier this week, I was struck by reading that and I thought, man, that's awesome. I mean, the thought of it would wear me out. But what then hit me is like, could that even take place? I mean, if we were even to offer a daily sermon, would anybody even show up? And a famous example of his verse-by-verse preaching is seen in his return to Geneva after his banishment three years later. Or sorry, three years earlier. Calvin was banished. And then he was able to return after three years and he re-entered the pulpit And he picked up on exactly the very same verse he left off with. And then he was exiled again six months later. And the same thing happened. He picked up exactly where he left off. The very same scripture. And just shows his dedication and confidence in preaching the word of God. And he says this in in some of his writings. I'll give you some quotes about Calvin and why he did this. He said, God begets and multiplies his church only by means of his word. It is by the preaching of the grace of God alone that the church is kept from perishing. He saw the preacher, in fact, especially himself, as merely a messenger of the divine message. His job was just, as my seminary seminary professors used to say, the job of the preacher is to bring the meal to the table without screwing it up. You're the servant. God's the chef. Just don't blow it. And this is, what, this is what Calvin says. He says, wherever the gospel is preached, it is as if God himself came into the midst of us. See, because he, he understood it's through hearing God's word that we come to know God. How else do we know our creator? This is how we know Jesus Christ. This is how we grow a relationship with him. In no other way. Now, our experience proves and confirms what the Word of God says. And so in that sense, it deepens it. But this is how we know Christ. And and, and really, this alone. He says, It is certain that if we come to church, we shall not only hear a mortal man speaking, but we shall feel, even by his secret power, that God is speaking to our souls, that he is the teacher. He so touches us, that the human voice enters into us and so profits us that we are refreshed and nourished by it. God calls us to him as if he had his mouth open and we saw him there in person. 
And so having let loose the word of God from captivity, it was the word of God and its power and its authority that transformed Europe. It wasn't the reformers by their own testimony and we could say by the testimony of Scripture. And we are direct recipients of this very grace. Think about it. We have the Bible in almost any form you want it. But what's sad, another thing, just that people nowadays buy Bibles not based upon the translation primarily, but the cover. I mean, what does that say about us? What does that say about what we understand this to be? This is no mere book. This is how we know our Creator. And we have tasted and we have seen and recognized what the Reformers recognize that Scripture alone is the authority for our faith and practice. And knowing this should deeply affect the way that we live. So bringing us to our third point, practice. Since it's through God's Word that we come to know God, this should be our greatest delight. If we were created by God to know Him, and that, you know, what does the Westminster Shorter Catechism say? We were created by God to, to, to know Him and enjoy Him forever. Yeah. You've been reading the Piper book. That's good. By enjoying Him forever, as Piper re- rephrases it. To glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. This is why the psalmist says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And Job said, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. This is, this is, this is what he, when he woke up, this is what he wanted. Why? It's not the words, it's who the words bring us to. Do you realize that? This is how we come to know God. This is how we fellowship with our Creator. And in light of this, we should be directed by God's Word in all that we do. I think both, both corporately and individually. We should be directed by the Word. And it, what I mean by this is we should constantly ask, be asking, what does the Bible say? So if a theological question comes up, well, what does the Bible say? What are the verses that pertain to this? And it's not wrong to say, well, what does MacArthur say? What does Piper say? What does Begg say? What does St. Augustine say? Those are, it's, okay, it's okay to say that, but the decisive issue should be, what does the Bible say? And in our conversations, we should, if somebody's struggling with something, if somebody's worried, if they're anxious, we shouldn't just come up with platitudes. We should say, well, what, is there anything that, that you can think of, of, of how the Bible might pertain to this? I mean, a great example of that was what Tim did for us. This morning, the beginning of our worship service, in drawing our hearts to Psalm 130. You know, he gave a bit of a testimony of his wrestling with it, but, but then what did he do? How he graciously brought us back. What does God's word say? We should say, what does the Bible say? Not, not as often, I think, for Americans, we, we're tempted to say, well, how do I feel about that? You know, somebody says something, and our initial response is, well, hmm, I don't know. That doesn't, that doesn't, I don't, I don't know how I think, I don't know what I feel about that. Not that that's wrong to ask, but our first, the decisive reason why we believe it or not should not be our feelings. Because we know, as Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful. Who can know it? And to make matters worse, we're constantly being bombarded by the world and its lies. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed according to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we, we're, we're, we're now more than ever. I believe so much of the reason we see our country just being ripped apart, even churches being ripped apart by dissension and disunity is, is partly because we are being bombarded, particularly by this cute little thing we call a smartphone with information that is not coming from Scripture. Or by the TV. We are constantly being bombarded by lies. And we're not even thinking about it. 
And it shapes our affections. It shapes our desire. It shapes our hopes. It shapes our fears. And so all the more we need to have our minds renewed, lest we get deceived. As Paul says, we are not, we are not, um, what does he say? Second Corinthians 10. We're not outwitted by Satan. We're aware of how he does his work. I'm totally paraphrasing it. And so therefore we need to have our minds full of the word of God. As Paul says in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. And he's speaking to the church corporately. Not just let it dwell in you, but catch the adverb. Richly. Fully. Abounding in you. That as you speak, we'd be like St. Patrick or John Bunyan. That you could prick us anywhere and our blood would be bibbling. And being full of the word will allow us to make God-honoring decisions with our lives. And knowing this should drive us to the word. So we need to be driven to the word. We should read the Bible daily, maybe even hourly. Especially if you're getting a lot of that information. And not just read it, but memorize it. I mean, another practice that falls out of favor in America. Memorize the Word. One way we do this, and I just mentioned this offhand because people ask, how do we do this for our kids? Uh, before each meal, we, 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 just, we, we have a Bible verse that we're memorizing. Right now, um, we're memorizing a verse from Romans 12 section of Romans 12. But we've memorized Psalm 34. We've memorized Isaiah 55. We'll memorize just sections of Scripture, you know, for the kids that they might learn to love the Word of God. And that's something you guys can do with your families as well, kids or not. But before you eat your meal, it's kind of our way of calling the kids to the table. We just start reciting Scripture. And the kids come and they join in. And it tends to set its tone for our, uh, our meals as well. So memorize the word, meditate on the word, study it as well. Another thing that's fallen out of practice, I think within the last 10 years or so, how many people study the word of God just on their own, not for a community group or a BSF or, or anything, but just, just for their own benefit. I, I remember that was when I, I would lead people to Christ when I was in college. And one of the first things they would request was teach me how to study the Bible. So we'd get like a, a Vines lexicon and a Strong's, you know, just some simple tools to use. I, I can, honestly, I can't tell, I, I don't remember the last time somebody asked me. Maybe it's because we have a hermeneutics class in this church. But I can't remember the last time somebody asked me, teach me to study the Word of God on my own. And I don't say that it's a criticism by any means. It's just, I think we forget what we have. We forget and there is, I can say this with absolute sincerity, there is no higher joy in my life than to sit and study the Word of God. I mean, the highest moments of my life have been in the simple study of Scripture. And we should also make the most, I think, of listening to sermons as well. Just as partly in light of what Calvin said and what Paul says. We need to realize sermons aren't meant to, to criticize culture or to give updates on the news or to entertain or, or, or inspire us. They are proclamations of God's word. And because of that, we, in light of Isaiah 66.3, we should come to it hearing the word of God with fear and trembling. With an eagerness to know what does God say? What does God want me to know? How does God want me to live? I mean, think about this. If a CEO in your company called you to his office to give you instruction, you would listen carefully to what he said to you. You wouldn't be zoning out, you know, looking out the window as he's giving instruction. You wouldn't be thinking about the Seahawks game. You wouldn't be thinking about what am I going to fix for dinner tonight. You would be riveted on what he has to say. How much more... When your creator, the one who saved you out of darkness from slavery to sin, speaks to you from his word. I'm going to close. This is Josh in our text talk brought this to my mind. Had us read it and it was such an encouragement. I want to close with Nehemiah 8. 
And I'd encourage you guys to open your Bibles and just to see this for yourself. We're not going to read every verse. We'll skip some. But I think a great, a beautiful example about how a congregation should come to the Word of God. And very much like the people Calvin was teaching, the, 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 the people that Nehemiah was teaching Scripture to were, were coming out of a time when they didn't have access to the Scriptures. And there was a thirst, there was a hunger for it. Just like there was with Calvin, which is why people came every day to sit before the Word and to be taught. So Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning of verse 8, or verse 1, sorry. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. They're commanding him, bring the book, bring it to us. We want the book. We don't want to hear what you have to say. Bring the book. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square, before the water gate, from early morning until midday. So you're, you're guessing six hours? In the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. Skipping to verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people, meaning he was standing above the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and this is, what the, this is what the pastor's job is. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send their portions and to make great rejoicing. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Heavenly Father. I pray that this would become the practice of all our lives, not just when we hear your word taught, but as we read your word morning by morning, evening by evening, that we would weep. I mean that. That we would be struck as we see our failure to conform to your commands. And I pray that after weeping, we might go forth into our days rejoicing in your word. He'd be like George Mueller, who said the first thing that he set his heart to do every morning was to make his heart happy in Jesus by reading the word. That we would be a people whose hearts are made happy in you. And again, Father, only you can open our eyes. Only you can help us to see the richness and give us an appetite for it. Help us to see it. Help us to have the sense so that we would live in a manner worthy of you who called us into your glory and kingdom. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.